0: Welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on Wednesday, 15th of November, 2023. The topic is the effect of loneliness on mental health. On the panel we have Dr. Alexis Witten, Senior Research Fellow and Clinical Psychologist at Black Dog Institute. Dr. Diana Chan, Clinical Psychologist and Black Dog Institute Facilitator. And Stephanie, our lived experience representative. Chairing the session is Dr. Sarah Barker.
1: Okay, welcome everyone to this Expert Insights episode, The Effects of Loneliness on Mental Health. To begin with, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. So Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin, and community. I'm in Nam or Melbourne, so I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land, and I'd like to extend that respect to the traditional owners of all the lands where you're Zooming in from today, as well as to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are with us today as well. We pay our respects to Elders past and present And we're committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. Today on our panel, we have um, Alexis Whitten, Diana Chan and Stephanie as our lived experience representative. So I will begin by asking each of you to introduce yourselves. So, Alexis, could I invite you to introduce yourself first, please?
2: Thank you, Sarah. So, my name is Alexis Witton. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Black Dog Institute, um, and it's great to have the opportunity to be part of this discussion today. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us, Alexis. Diana Chan, can you introduce yourself, please?
3: Hello. Um, my name's Diana Chan. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. Uh, when I'm not working for Black Dog, uh, I work at a school and at the children's hospital um, with kids and teens. Um, and I'm also really looking forward to our discussion today. I think this is such an important topic for this time of year. Thanks, Diana, for joining us. And Stephanie,
1: hello and welcome. Can you introduce yourself, please?
4: Well, Thanks for having me today. My name is Steph. Um, I'm a lived experience advisor at Black Dog. I'm also part of the youth advisory group. Um, and I've experienced loneliness in you know, all different waves of my life. So it's, it's, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. And like the other two said, I think it's a really critical thing to be talking about, particularly um, towards the kind of end of youth stuff going on.
1: I think so, Steph.
4: I think that's a really great point. Thank you very much for giving us your
1: time and expertise today too. Alexis, loneliness is a growing community health concern, especially since it can be connected with anxiety, depression, and also physical health issues. Before you tell us about your research, what are the differences between loneliness and social isolation?
2: Thanks, Sarah. So, I think we often use the terms loneliness and social isolation interchangeably, but they are quite different. So, Social isolation usually refers to actual physical separation from other people. For instance, uh, a person living alone or someone working remotely in a location away from others. They're examples of social isolation. Loneliness, on the other hand, is this subjective feeling of being alone, regardless of the amount of social contact you have. It's really about feeling disconnected from others or like your social needs are not being met. And now, although social isolation and loneliness often do go hand in hand, they can be quite different from one another. So, not all socially isolated people feel lonely. They may have relatively solitary lives but not feel lonely because the limited interactions they have are deeply meaningful and the reverse is also true. So, for example, uh, some people can be surrounded by others yet feel very alone if they don't feel emotionally connected to those around them. Really interesting. Thanks, Alexis. Diana, as a
1: clinician, how do you distinguish between loneliness and social isolation?
3: Um, I think, um, the points that Alexis raised really ring true in my experience as well. Um, social isolation, that's about being sort of physically away from people or the number of people that we have around us. Um, and, and what I've seen in my clinical work is that the two aren't necessarily correlated. Um, there are people who might on the surface seem like the life of the party. They're always having friends around. They're always, um, connecting with other people in a group. Um, but still they feel this deep sense of loneliness um, because there isn't that sort of emotional connection. They're not sort of feeling uh, welcomed and, and seen for who they are um, and cared for. Um, and equally, there are people who um, live on their own, uh, may not see people day to day, but um, still know that they really have good, strong connections with some people. And that um, can mean that they don't feel lonely. Right. Thank you so much.
4: Stephanie,
1: you've uh, experienced loneliness, as you mentioned. Can you have friends around you and feel lonely?
4: Yeah, one hundred percent. When I think of the differentiation between social isolation and loneliness, um, historically, I've always been someone who is incredibly socially involved. I'm around so many people, big family, university, school, and I really like how um, the phrasing that Diana used of the life of the party. Um, you know, from the outside, I'm someone who has a lot of a lot of friends, a lot of acquaintances. Although, at many times in my life, inside, no matter who I'm surrounded by, I've always felt very, you know like I'm here in this space, but I'm not here, you know, in in the mental realm. Um, So yes, I I definitely feel in my own experience that it's very possible um, and quite common I've found to to feel lonely no matter how many people you're surrounded by.
1: Thanks, Stephanie. So Alexis, some people have a hard time admitting that they feel lonely. To what extent is there stigma in Australia about feeling lonely?
2: Yeah, so this is a really interesting issue. So assessing loneliness has become a really core part of Australia's population level mental health and well-being surveys. And these surveys show that loneliness is really common. And we can get into the stats a little bit later, but what I find interesting is that um, despite the reports of how common loneliness is, it still doesn't seem to make it any easier for us to admit when we feel lonely. Now, the need for social connection is a really fundamental human drive, just like the need for food or water. And we don't have any issues communicating to others when we're hungry, but we do when we feel lonely. Um, And I think the other interesting part of this is that there seems to be a little less degree of stigmatization around admitting when you live alone. So, there's a difference between expressing that you're lonely that you like spending your time alone. Uh, So I'm really curious to hear from others how they unpack that.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, thank you, Alexis. Yeah. Um, Stephanie, do you think the stigma about talking about feeling lonely?
4: I 100 agree that there is, um, even though it's it's something that a lot of people can recognize as being quite common. Um, the feeling that I associate with it is kind of embarrassment, especially through the through the lens of a young person. You know, I'm in my early 20s. The people around me, the communities I'm surrounded by, it's the whole you know, partying and going out and being together and being a part of all these great groups. Um, and then it's a little bit embarrassing to, to feel like you're the outlier, to feel like you, you know, it's it's kind of a, I feel like the stigma lies in how you're perceived by other people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really identify with the feelings of embarrassment and almost the feelings of, of shame um, connected to admitting and saying, you know what, actually, I, I feel really lonely in, in, in life in general. Yeah.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Stephanie. Yeah. And about Alexis's point about, um, Living alone, do you think there's that there's less stigma there? Is that an easier thing to talk about? I'm not sure what the case is with you, but um do you think that
4: that's a, perhaps an easier thing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, my own experience, I still live with my parents. I live with my family, so I don't have a you know direct experience. But from the circles that I'm in, someone who does live alone, it's it's generally taken at face value. It's it's a lot easier to digest. It's like, oh, you live alone. That's great. You're so independent. It's kind of I've almost found it the reverse. You know, it's kind of a admirable to to live alone or admirable to be like, I'm quite introverted. I like spending my time by myself. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Diana, what do you observe in terms of stigma about loneliness in young people as a clinician?
3: Um, I absolutely agree with both what Alexis and Stephanie have said. I think there's definitely a loneliness stigma. Um, I think on a societal level, there's probably more in the media about certain age groups being lonely. So, for example, I often see articles about really elderly people being lonely now that you know their spouse might have passed away. They're not able to connect as much with other people because they're less mobile, etc. Um, but for young people, um, there is this real stigma because it's almost like this is not something that should affect affect us at this stage. We see so many people at school, at uni, um, at work. Um, it's just sort of expected that you're supposed to have these social connections. Um, and I really, I don't think that social media is the root of all evil, but I often do wonder whether that contributes to this. Um, you know, we see people online getting all of the likes, getting, you know, posting pictures in, in groups of friends, etc., and it can kind of create this um, illusion that everyone has these really strong social connections but me. Um, but what we know from the data and what surveys have said is that this is a really big problem for this age group. Um, Young people often come up as one of the age groups that um, most experience loneliness. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely a stigma about talking about it and reaching out for help.
1: Yeah. So, to what extent, Dana, do you think loneliness is a natural human response?
3: Yeah, um, absolutely. I think Alexis earlier said that, you know, it's it's a really biological thing. Um, and, you know, back when we were cavemen, um, being on our own meant that we would more be more likely to be eaten by an animal. It was less likely that our need for food and shelter um, would be met. And so, we've really evolved to... Um, be in a group with other people. Um, and what loneliness is, it's, it's a bit like hunger for food and thirst for water. It's a sign that we need to have more social connection in our life. Um, um, but, yeah, the the threshold at, at which people you know feel that um, differs from person to person. Just like everyone probably has a different metabolism and needs different um, amounts of food. Um, but I think what that tells us is that it's a really human, biologically driven, evolutionarily driven um, drive in us, um, and so it's something that we can all experience um, and something that can affect us all. Great, thank you, Diana
1: Stephanie. How much does your experience of connection affect your mood, your um, worries, your sleep, your physical health?
4: Yeah, it, 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 it very much impacts it. Um, and it's only very recently through a lot of, you know, internal work that I've actually discovered where, you know, the connectedness between the two, um, you know, if I was to break it down, for example, sleep. Um, something that I've noticed in myself is that I, I often just forget the simplicity of if I am feeling a negative thought, a negative emotion going through something that is causing anxiety or stress or bad mood, I can reach out to people and i can actually speak about it i've through such an extended you know feeling of loneliness i've i've lost that skill i've lost that kind of thought process of if if i feel lonely i can reach out and i've really noticed it it really manifested you know when you're going to bed at night you're just you're just trying to relax and unwind i never understood the concept of just you know having a clear mind um and so through that i would you know i just made it a practice before if i'm struggling to sleep if i'm struggling to focus literally just do the step of finding a safe person, anyone that I can connect with, even, you know, going and connecting with, with nature, with people, with animals, anything to just remind myself, okay, there's places I can go mentally. There's people I can speak to physically. Um, and I feel like it's kind of an undercurrent in, in those three things that you mentioned. And do you think loneliness is
1: taken seriously enough to given the effect it can have on young people's lives, Stephanie?
4: Yeah, this, uh, this is such an interesting question to me because when you think of loneliness, it's, it's not a it's not a diagnosis. It's not something like depression or anxiety or other forms of mental ill health where we we know what it is. We can for sure say that that is what you're experiencing. Um, And because of that, there's no cure, there's no treatment. It's really kind of a grey area and it looks so different in different people. And I think we don't understand, you know, just from my experience, I don't think we understand the implications of loneliness and the impact that it has on us as humans. Um, For example, we know that what certain symptoms of depression may look like. We know how that may impact people. And through that, we know how to, you know, alleviate those symptoms and make life easier. But since loneliness is something that is so, you know, vague and in the air, We don't, at least I feel like within, you know, common society in layman's terms, um, we struggle to recognize it. Therefore, we struggle to rationalize it. Therefore, we struggle to to help it and to help others through it. Mm
1: -hmm. Interesting. Alexis, can you tell us about your research on loneliness and depression in young people, which is part of the 2022 Turning the Tide on Depression report?
2: Yes. So, uh, last year, um, myself and a group of quite a large team um, of academics, young people, clinicians, um, we got together and did a deep dive into um, trying to understand what might be driving the rising rates of depression we're seeing in Australia and particularly in young people and especially in young women. So, we know that over the last 10 and 20 years, we've seen a considerable increase in the prevalence of depression, particularly amongst uh, younger people. Um, And so, we looked at how the lives of young people have changed in the last 20 years. And one of the things that really popped out was the way in which the nature of social interaction, the quality of social interaction has changed. So, what we know at the moment is that over the last 20 or so years, across Australia, population-level data has really consistently shown that around one in five Australians agree with the statement, I often feel lonely. And this seems to be increasing in young people under the age of 24, especially in young women. Around a quarter to even a third of young women report significant levels of loneliness. And now when you look at the rates of social isolation, so people being uh, having limited amounts of social interaction, we see that that's also rising in tandem with loneliness. Now, although young people are, on average, uh, the group that are likely to have the highest amount of social contact, over the last 20 years, they've shown the greatest decline in actual social contact. So, they're down 17% compared to the overall decline of 11% across the population. So, I think what this tells us is that a rise in loneliness and potentially depression in young people could have something to do with changes in actual levels of social interaction
1: Mm, how fascinating okay thank you And, and screen time what's your thought what are your thoughts on that then is that making young
2: people more lonely do you think well, I think it's uh, an area that everybody jumps to quite yeah. quickly. Yeah. And we do know that for around a third of adolescents, they spend now an equal amount of time interacting online with their peers as they do in person. But I think the the key point here is that the relationship between, you know, online uh, screen time and loneliness is really nuanced. So, for some people, it can actually counteract loneliness by providing opportunities to connect with other people uh, that share um, their same views. But then we also see the other side of it, where too much online interaction can displace uh, physical interaction. And we really don't know enough about how the quality of online interaction compares to the quality of face-to-face interaction when it comes to buffering against things that cause depression. Is it just as effective? We don't know.
1: Okay, so many young people have started a job during the pandemic, Alexis, and instead of going into a workplace each day, many are often doing hybrid work or perhaps still working from home rather than building connections in an actual workplace. What's that relationship between hybrid and remote work and loneliness, do you think?
2: Yeah, this is a really interesting one. On the one hand, hybrid work has really opened doors for young people to work in areas that previously wasn't possible. Um, However, what we also see is that many young people are entering the workforce and what their day-to-day life looks like is sitting alone in their bedroom. Now, if you're facing stressful deadlines at work, sometimes your best source of support is actually your colleagues and having a strong connection with them to sort of laugh it off or get support. Now, if you're a young person who's been working remotely, you don't necessarily have those strong bonds to buffer against those difficult or challenging deadlines at work. Um, And so, this can mean that young people really do uh, struggle in the workplace because they don't have that same depth of connection as someone who's maybe um, entered the workforce and already built those strong connections through face-to-face interaction.
1: Mm, And I imagine similar things might apply with the number of people, young people doing online study now as well for lectures rather than going in perhaps too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And Alexis, you've interviewed many psychologists in Australia who treat depression about the factors that get in the way of people making a full recovery from depression. What did you find?
2: So, what we were really interested in here, um because we're seeing that uh, there's people are more willing to reach out for support when they're experiencing symptoms of depression, particularly young people. Uh, But there's still some variability in how uh, effective different treatments can be person to person. And we ask psychologists, well, what is it um, about those people who don't seem to get as much benefit from treatment? What is it that you think impedes recovery? Now, the first one was simply being able to access and afford mental health services, but second to that was social isolation and loneliness. So from the perspective of psychologists, they view social isolation and loneliness as being one of the top barriers to recovery from depression. How interesting. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So
1: therapy may not be the answer necessarily for Diana, what's important in the
3: social interactions young people have to protect against loneliness? Um, I think we've heard from both Alexis um, and Steph that it's it's clearly not about the number of social connections we have, but really the quality of them. Um, so having that emotional connection, feeling like you are seen for who you are, both the ups and the downs, and that you are still accepted and cared for by other people. Um, so it, in, in those relationships, it's the, the emotional depth and quality is what really sort of helps ward against, um, loneliness, I think.
1: Yeah. Great. Great. Um, and we touched on this previously, but social media, do you see in your work with young people, I know you work Mm. with young people, do you think it's hindering or helping with loneliness?
3: Um, I think social media is often touted as sort of the root of all evil, especially for young people. Um, but I think the the, the relationship between social media and loneliness is probably more nuanced than that in my experience. Um as I think someone pointed out earlier, it can be used as a way of developing meaningful connections. So, for example, um, I have a friend who has a child with additional needs um, and social media is one of her really strong social supports where she's able to connect with other families in the same situation um, and share the journey together. Um, But I think for most of us and and myself included, um, we probably don't use uh, social media that productively. What we um, tend to do um, is to spend sort of endless hours scrolling through people's updates. Um, and I think what that can create is a sense of like everyone's life is better or more perfect or they're more social or there are better things going on for them than they are for me. Um, and that's because social media by its nature is so highly curated. You know, no one's posting um, a post about an argument they've just had with a family member. It's always about the positive stuff. Um, And so that can actually really um, increase the sense of disconnection, I think, that it just seems like my life is not as as exciting or not as meaningful um, as what these other people are posting. Terrific. Thanks, Diana.
1: Your thoughts, Steph, on social media and loneliness, what are they?
4: Yeah, there's so much there. and I think of a quote that I heard once um, that went something along the lines of, when you're when you're viewing social media you should assume that every single thing you are seeing is a snapshot of the best hour of that person's day um and hearing that really like i love how diana phrased it as like productivity um that really fra- like framed the way that i use social media and view social media because when i do find myself scrolling and thinking things like oh well you know their friendship group is so much bigger than mine and they're going on holidays with so many more people and it's becoming a really conscious practice to stop and to be like, okay, well, if I was going to share the best snapshot of my day, you know, I've just watched my best friend's favorite movie and I I really enjoyed it. And now I can, I can talk to him about it. So when I feel myself going into that comparison, I really try to reframe it and say, all right, if I had to say the best part of my day, if I had to share that with 5,000 people, what would I say? And, um, I think, think the other layer to that is just, you know, social media uh, can be a really great tool. You know, I used to try to cultivate those relationships through social media, stuff like Instagram DMs and Facebook Messenger. Uh, very quickly realized, you know, there's a lot lost. You can't, I can't see their face. I can't hear the cadence of how they're speaking. Um, so instead, I can use it as a tool and, you know, message someone or if someone's in my class, be like, do you have Instagram? Do you have Facebook? Message them and be like, do you want to meet up? Would you like to go and do this? Would you like to do an activity? Let's call on Discord and play some games together. So... I try to use social media more as a tool rather than my means of connecting with others. Great. Thanks, Steph.
1: Alexis, a big question now. What do we need to do at a broader societal level to better address the outcomes for people with depression then?
2: So I think in the context of loneliness and and addressing loneliness as a way to improve um, depression, I think a big point is that there's currently no agreed upon treatments for loneliness. So there are many um, interventions, art-based interventions, social prescribing type interventions that have good evidence, but rarely are these funded by the government. So we're still heavily focused on funding individual mental health treatments as a way to tackle depression and given that psychologists are saying that loneliness is one of the biggest barriers to recovery, I think we really need to cast the net wider here in our thinking. Um, The other point is that addressing loneliness is likely to involve um, industries very much outside of mental health as well. So, Looking at professions like urban design how can we create spaces where young people can interact safely, including without necessarily having to have a parent present or to pay for something? Um, so, I think we've seen a real erosion of these types of spaces in our um, cities, uh, and this is really not conducive to providing opportunities for young people to interact face-to-face.
1: Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, urban design has a real role to play in connection. I think about some countries where they'll have a piazza and people will be encouraged to join old and young and play there together. Yeah, huge role. Yeah, great, great thoughts. Thank you. Diana, is therapy the best thing for loneliness and what needs to be done in terms of social policy to address loneliness?
3: Yeah, Um, I think therapy can certainly help in that um, when we're really out of practice with connecting people emotionally, there can be barriers um, to that. So, for example, if we're not used to reaching out and connecting, there can be some anxiety about that, you're unsure how to go about it. And so, therapy can help you navigate the obstacles in a sense um, and, and find a way through them. Um, I really echo what Alexis is saying in terms of um, there is a real erosion of spaces that we can be in. Um, So, I think building meaningful connections, um, the first step is to build connections, full stop. Um, And I think that Um, the government is doing some things to help with that. So, for example, um, the active kids vouchers, um, I've known um, a lot of kids and teenagers who've been able to be a part of sport teams and et cetera um, as a result of that. Um, I've also had lots of friends become new parents um, and they've been routinely connected with a mother's group um, of kids with the similar age um, to sort of help navigate those new parent journeys together. So, there are things that the government is putting in place, um, but I think yeah, there can definitely be more opportunity for that. And I think the other thing that governments need to work on is, is sort of creating um, enough breathing space in people's lives that they can prioritise um, connections with other people. Um, and as Alexis pointed out, this is often outside of industries like mental health. Um, so, for example, things like um, good um, you know, fiscal policy um you know, trying to keep the cost of living manageable so that people aren't having to work extended hours to try and make ends meet. You know, we've all had experience where we've been really stressed and and when we're really stressed, it's hard to have time and headspace to connect with other people. Um, Mm -hmm. So, there are things like that that um, the government can do um, on a societal level to give people that breathing space to prioritise connections.
1: And your response is making me think about, you know, we think about Helping people to connect at certain points in life that are perhaps mm. a bit more challenging, maybe thinking of several points throughout the lifetime. Absolutely. Yeah, there are opportunities for that connection, maybe when people retire, when people, mm. you know, other, other
3: points that are perhaps a
1: little bit more,
3: yeah, fragile or, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah
3: I agree it's, with that. I think we often yeah. find ourselves in loneliness because there's been life transitions in your group That's of friends. Nice. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Natural transitions that are part mm. of life too.
3: Yeah. That's right. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, Dana, if overcoming loneliness is a long-term goal, what are mm-hmm. the small things that our young people can do even today to increase meaningful connections?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is a longer-term project. Um, people probably don't go from feeling very lonely to very connected in a matter of days and weeks. Um, it is a long, long-term thing that we build over time. Um, so as I said before, I think building meaningful connections really involves one, building connections full stop. Um, the more people that we're able to meet, the more likely that we are to find people who connect with us, who gel with us, who we feel get get we get each other. Um, and so, then the second step is really to deepen um, those connections in a meaningful way so that they're not always at the superficial level, that you do have a group of people that you can tap on the shoulder if you need to talk about something or if you need help with something. Um, and so, the the Things that people can, do, can be doing to increase meaningful connections is really aligned to those two things. So, things like join groups with common interests, find people who share your love of bushwalking or reading or um, those sorts of things in, and find people in a similar stage of life, um, just people that you can connect with um, and to start to build friendships with. All of our deep friendships start um, on a level where we don't really know each other and we're trying to find out more about each other. Um, I think prioritizing relationships is really important. Often, especially at life transition points, um, it can life can feel a bit frantic. There can, it can feel like there's not enough time. Um, and often our gatherings with other people and our friendships and our coffee catch-ups are some of the first things to go. Um, but we really need to um, prioritize connections with people to ensure that we're maintaining them over time. Um, and then the third thing I would recommend is to really practice vulnerability. I think in Australia, when we ask each other how we are, there's a stock standard. Yep, everything's going fine. Um, we like to, um, yeah, sort of keep struggles private. Um, but in in order to really build meaningful connections um, and emotionally connected um, relationships, we need to be sharing um, things more about our day. So, um, you yeah. know take the leap and say, oh, actually, today I had a meeting and it didn't go so well um, and, and try and bring that vulnerability to our relationships too. Mm-hmm. Well, that creates a stronger sense of intimacy too, doesn't mm. it? People, that's more likely to share something. Absolutely. Well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah.
1: I'm I'm just wondering, Diana, and all of you, mm. you know, people have been through a pandemic mm. and periods of lockdown possibly too. So there mightn't, is as primed as, and is as used to interacting as yeah. you were previously, if yep. people feel like they've lost their social muscle a bit and that, that exposure to or that sharing, that deeper sharing is um, mm. more challenging, what are yep. some, are there some ways that you suggest to young people to kind of yet get that muscle going again?
3: Yeah, um, I think often if we've you know lost touch with people over the pandemic, um, it doesn't mean that those social connections aren't there anymore. Um, often in my experience when I've encouraged young people to reach out to someone that they might have used to be really good friends with um, or spent a lot of time with, that they um, reconnect and, and actually that person on the other end really welcomes that. Um, so, I would just encourage people to sort of take the step um, and give it a go yeah yeah and so perhaps
4: priming
1: them to um respond mm. more than i'm okay and something more honest yeah yes yes yeah, yeah, yeah that's helpful idea. too mm-hmm.
2: great right. right and there's yeah. another piece um around uh engaging in shared goals i think so coming out of the pandemic you know a lot of us developed our own hobbies that we did um while we were in lockdown and many of these were individual hobbies um But a great way to build connections, including with people that you don't know so well, is to work on some sort of shared goal. So, things like, you know, maintaining a community garden, this can be a great way to, um, and maybe an easier way, if you're not quite up for being vulnerable, to actually build some meaningful connections as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, kind of that doing together and the shared goal of, yeah, a vision and a purpose together. Really nice. Yeah. Yeah. And lots of probably community initiatives and strategies that would lend themselves nicely to that too if we, yeah, think about it. Great point. Thank you. Stephanie, what have you found helpful in terms of of addressing loneliness? What have been some of the most helpful things there?
4: Yeah, I feel like this is a really nice segue. I was kind of forming some thoughts and opinions as as um, Diana and Alexis were speaking there. And I think in terms of like actionable, what I have done, like when, when I hear that question, I'm like how can whoever's listening to this, how can they actually take something from it? And one thing that I've done, and it might sound silly when I first say it, is just. Thinking one step further, um, I can give you an example literally from today that, that's coming to mind. I'm someone, uh, like, like you said, Alexis, with um hobbies in, in lockdown, I got way more in tune with my I love op shopping. I love buying things secondhand. I used to kind of enjoy it. But during lockdown, I craved that thing that I missed so bad that now lockdown's over every weekend. I'm at salvos at somewhere. I know all the spots. Um, And just today, I was not paying attention in my lecture, but I was yeah. thinking like, oh, you know, I really want to go op shopping next week. You know, exams are done. I want to do that. And that's usually where I'd stop. You know, I take myself up shopping next week whenever I wanted to. But taking that step further, um, you know, I, I met a woman in one of my classes and we just happened to kind of connect. And I, I thought to myself, we've been, you know, casually, like you know, starting a friendship. And instead of just thinking, I want to go up shopping. I'll go up shopping. I got my phone out. And I'm using social media as a tool. And I messaged her and I was like, Hey, do you like secondhand shopping by chance? And she was like, Oh my God, I actually love secondhand shopping. And I was like, great. Well, next week, let's go together and let's do this. And it, it makes me think of, um, you know, kind of, I forgot who said it earlier, but, um, finding people who are like-minded, finding people who have similar hobbies, similar social circles, um, and then it's kind of the other side of that, which Alexis sort of touched on, which is sharing your hobbies. Because how do we know we have these shared interests in these, you know, similar social circles if we're not talking about it? Now, I didn't have to ask if she liked secondhand shopping. I didn't have to reach out. But by mm-hmm. doing so, now instead of just doing an activity I find enjoyable, I'll be doing it connected with another person. Yeah, yeah.
1: And probably your social risk, your courage in inviting her might encourage her to do some inviting back too for, yeah, even something different as well. Nah. Really lovely example. Thank you, Stephanie. Diana, what about advice for parents, teachers, caregivers of young people who are experiencing loneliness? Anything you
4: mm. to to
3: yeah, have thoughts on there? Um, I think touching back to what we are talking about before, um, this is really a long-term project. So um, I think viewing it as that um, can take the pressure off a little bit um, in that you know, we're taking small steps to it, but we know that this is a longer term goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say give them opportunities to meet and connect with people um, that are like minded. So, if you're a parent, that might be, um, as Steph was saying, you know, finding a hobby that they can share with other people. Um, this can be through formal things like sport teams, etc., but it all can also be um, more informal. You know, inviting them over on the weekend um, to do something together, um, and For teachers, um, something I often um, ask them to do is to, you know, when you're you're doing group work and you're putting um, students together, try and pair them with someone that you think might click um, and and for that to be a a helpful friendship. Um, So, there are those things that people can be doing to help increase this um, number of connections to help them find people who they click with and are are like-minded. Encourage them to take small steps, um, however small that is. Um, So, yeah, it's particularly if they're feeling very anxious about reaching out to other people. um, Encourage them to do a step that stretches them um, a little bit um, but not something that's overwhelming. Um, Help them sort of um, identify that with you together. Um, Because often we we might say, you know, why don't you go and say hello to so-and-so on the playground tomorrow? But that can often feel like a big step. Um, And actually a, a smaller thing might be that, you know, they they message to say hi or something like that um, and also model um, what it means to prioritize relationships in your own life um, and also model sharing the ups and downs of life um, as well and not just the curated social media version of what's going on sure
1: sure brilliant thank you so much diana Okay. Um how does the attachment history of an individual impact their experience of loneliness? Does anyone
2: know anything about that? I guess um I can offer some thoughts. Yeah. So I I guess, um, a lot of the thinking around attachment is that your early experiences with attachment figures like parents or, you know, um, other family members, your, the nature of your relationship with them and how they respond to your, um, you know, expression of love, affection, desire to connect can really shape your, um, future relationships. So if you've, uh, been a person who's experienced some rejection in your early life by an attachment figure that can make you even more um, cautious or apprehensive for reaching out and communicating that you actually do need something from someone else. Um, So, I guess it's being mindful of how early experiences may be shaping your current thinking about relationships. And that's certainly an easier thing said than done, uh, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure um, Diane can probably Mm -hmm. uh, attest to.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to add there. Thanks, Alexis. Um, No, I I really... echo, I think, what Alexis has said. Often those early experiences can colour, um, for example, things like how we interpret another person's um, actions or what they say towards us. Um, being aware of those is really important. Um, and But I do want to encourage people that um, just because we've had that experience doesn't mean that our patterns are set. I think the research does show that, um, you know, for example, with therapy, um, that that is something that they can um, work on adjusting in their life. And I think that's That's probably an area that um, it might be really helpful to engage with a mental health professional to explore that. Terrific. Yeah, thank you.
1: Great question to the person who asked it. Thank you. All right. So, for each of you, what do you see as making the most powerful difference to loneliness in young people?
2: Alexis, I'll start with you if that's okay. Thank you. Yes, sure. This is a really big question, but a a really important one. Um, I think we need to realize that uh, social connection. It's important for everyone, everyone, but especially so for young people. You know, they're at an age where they are forming the relationships that they will um, will carry them throughout life. And if they don't have enough opportunities to engage in meaningful connection with their peers, they're not going to build those formative relationships. Now, a lot of things have changed in the way that young people and their families live. As Diane said before, there's there's less time; things cost more. So, I think it really is creating um, purposeful opportunities around you know social interaction and social connection whether this be through schools um, extracurricular activities or just families getting together and ensuring that young people who are part of their families have time to interact with one another yeah
3: great thank you diana mm. um i absolutely think agree that providing them with opportunities um, is really, really important. Um, And I think another thing that I think has come up in our discussion a number of times is that it's not about the number of connections as well, it's about the depth of them. Um, So, um, yeah, they need to be out there and connecting, but they also need to be mindful that um, what makes a difference um, is having that emotional connection to someone. It's not just about their physical presence um, in your life.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: which is about that, that, that
1: piece about the vulnerability sharing that mm. and deepens that yeah great, yeah, absolutely. great. Thank
4: you. and Steph what are your thoughts what's most powerful making a difference yeah I think what's most powerful and again like Alexis kind of said it's a huge question there's so many different perspectives you can take on it but one thing that overarches everything like we've touched on is just not only vulnerability but just pure openness. Um, for example, something we've, we've mentioned quite quite a number of times is cost of living. The actual accessibility, you know, I, I'm, in my, I'm in my very early 20s. The actual accessibility of creating those opportunities looks different for so many people. It looks different for so many different communities, but especially minority groups who, you know, these kind of conversations aren't happening as frequently. Um, you know, myself as an example, I'm someone who does, you know, although I go to uni, I do need to work multiple jobs in order to just exist. So when I look at people going on these grand holidays with all their friends it's an, it's an unrealistic expectation for me I, I don't have that opportunity and I can't create that opportunity which sometimes really gets me down I think you know if only I could just me and my friends could go on a cool holiday to Bali and it'd be so great um you know it, it really does not only make you aware of how lonely you feel but adds to it and compounds to it um and so I think the openness you know for example when a friend reaches out and says to me like you know oh do you want to join me on this and do that and I for example with with you know logistically speaking, I can't afford to do so. It's, it's not being scared to be open about that, you know, and it's, it's not being scared to be like, Hey, that's actually, that's not really something I can do at the moment. You know, I, I need to work from two to five on Tuesday. I need, you know, I can't really afford to to drop my shifts this week, something like that. And then being open enough and having that vulnerability to say, Oh, maybe we can do this instead. Maybe instead of going shopping, cause I I really don't know if that's good for me this week, maybe we can just like, you know, Hang out and have a campfire. Maybe we can. I always, I think with young people, like I, like through t- through adolescence and very young adulthood, you might notice people are always congregating in food courts and at ovals. And that is because sitting in a food court means people look at you sitting in a food court and they're not assuming like they don't have the means to go shopping in all the expensive stores. You could have just finished your meal. You could just be having, you know, having a chat. And so I feel like we congregate in those areas because it, it releases that expectation of, of, you know, it releases that what people are thinking of us. And for ovals, you know, I I often walk my dog, you know, to a big oval to hang out with all of his dog friends because it's free. And it's a way that I can go and talk to, you know, his friends owners uh, and have those conversations. And you see the kids on the playground and the playground is a free place for parents to, to take them. You see, I see a lot of, you know, of elderly people using the workout equipment at the park. Like it's, it's being open and honest and and telling people, you know, not only, Hey, I'm feeling lonely. I I kind of, I need some help doing that, but the actual steps and how to achieve that connection and give those opportunities. It's just being vulnerable and saying exactly what you need and exactly what you might not be able to, to give or to, to achieve right now.
1: Oh, Great. Thank you so much, Steph. We've got a couple more questions in the um, Q&A. Someone has said they're curious about the research into different cultures, Western culture being perhaps more individualistic, Eastern culture more collective focused. Any thoughts on that?
2: I was actually just having a a conversation about this exact issue with um, a colleague of mine last week, and we were talking about some of the um, pros and cons, I guess, of different um, you know, cultural variability and individualism. And I think here in Australia, we're becoming, you know, increasingly individualistic, and this is leading to, you know, erosion in opportunities to engage in shared goals. Um, it does come with some uh, benefits, but, you know, we we do know that there's this real atomization of society happening. Um, Now, when you go to other cultures, you might see a much greater emphasis focused on um, community and um, family connectedness, which, you know, we're losing increasingly here in Australia. Um, So, I think we can really look to um, different cultural groups to get some insights into how to maintain or restore uh, eroded relationships. So, I think that's a really important, important point
1: fantastic thanks alexis and then diana i might direct this question to you the these issues are often more difficult for neurodiverse individuals any ideas of how to promote friendships apart from joining groups to find people with similar interests i know this is an area that you work in.
3: <laughs> great question thank you to the person that is who yeah. that is a great question um, yeah i think i think joining groups is important um, in that it can help us find people who um, are like us, um, but it, it can be difficult, more difficult for neurodiverse people. But I, I, um, I think a lot of my young people who are not neurodiverse have found um, certain pockets of communities that um, that where they are being able to find like-minded individuals. Um, so um, gaming comes up um, a lot for my young people um, who are neurodiverse. Um, so I think there's definitely pockets um, that they're able to join in, um, and and I'd encourage them to keep persisting. Um, it it can sort of take neurodiverse people um, a bit more processing to kind of understand what's happened in a social context or what hap- what's happening in a in a relationship. Um, so if you're a parent or a teacher, just to be mindful that they may need some more talking through of those things, the things that. Um, might be quite explicit and automatic um, for for other people. Um, they may, may take a bit more effort to kind of um, come around to. So, um, keeping that in mind um, as well and, and having people that you can do that with um, as a neurodiverse person.
2: And just... Just to follow on from what Diane said there, I think um, this raises a really interesting point about how we shape expectations of what social interaction looks like. So, for um, someone who is neurodiverse, their ideal social um, occasion could be to meet up with a specific friend at a very specific time to do a specific activity for one hour and then at you know, it's very predictable. So I think changing um, or you know, accepting that there's variability in what social interaction looks like is important.
3: Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And what's nurturing too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well. Yeah, That's that's, yeah. A, that's a beautiful point. Thank you. Thank you both. Stephanie, over to you. <laughs> End of year rituals and yeah. celebrations can, can make um, – Can sometimes exacerbate people's feelings of loneliness so this this time of year coming up what's one thing you'd really like young people who are experiencing loneliness to know
4: yeah um I have always had such not even just end of year Christmas all that kind of stuff um boxing all these crazy rushes of things happening um I've always had very severe anxiety towards any type of event Christmases birthdays anything any social holiday um which is only made worse by feeling lonely because you, again, the social expectation of being around others, hanging around the family at Christmas, you know, going to events, Christmas parties, work parties. It is so much. It is so much. Um, and especially, I just, I want to acknowledge the, the neurodivergent lens as well. Um, I myself am, am neurodivergent and i I love what you two have said in regards to it. Um, cause that adds a third layer of complexity. So one thing that I think is super important surrounding loneliness with the, the all of this, you know, hectic rush of where we should and how we should and what we should is, again, it goes back to openness, not just with others. You know, I feel like that that's we've discussed that quite a bit, but also with yourself. Um, I really love, Alexis, how you touched in our, in our previous little note there about how you know, neurodivergent people might need more of a process, more steps, more of the how to actually achieve this. Um, and it's really important for, for a lot of people, particularly neurotypical people, to understand how different that may look. For example, for myself, you know, end, end of year Christmas celebrations with family. I'm European. I have a huge family. There's way too many of us for me to keep track of. Um, and so to me, I, I can be honest with myself and say, you know, I, I will attend that as a social expectation, as a member of this family. But after that, I will attend. And to me, I, I, I can pinpoint it exactly. I will go Boxing Day shopping with one person in the same place we've gone to for years at this certain time because there will be less people. Because I want still want to have the shopping experience without overwhelming myself and going beyond what I'm capable of. Um so I think first of all, for, for you know people experiencing loneliness, accept that. You know, it, it can be it's easier said than done, but just accept how you are feeling and, and understand you are not the first person, you are not the last person, and you're not the only person currently who feels this, you know, loneliness towards these events. Um, And be honest with yourself about what you need. Do your absolute best to not concern yourself so much with what others are expecting of you and do what serves yourself, whether that is those big events, whether that is denying the Christmas invitation, whether that's, you know, going out to lunch with a certain amount of people. It's just so important to recognize what serves you best and, to understand that you deserve to enjoy the, these things that, that people who aren't experiencing loneliness can enjoy so easily. It might be more difficult for you to find out how to find pleasure and happiness and community in this time of year in these events, um, but you, you deserve it too. And if, if you can pinpoint how you can get that, um, don't feel bad for, for that looking different for you.
1: Well said. Thank you so much, Yeah, That's yeah, great, great insights. Yeah. And yeah, I'm seeing in the chat box, absolutely okay to say no. Sometimes we need to listen to those needs more too. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, everyone, for sharing all your insights and your expertise in this area. It's been a great discussion. Thank you too to our um, participants today for coming along and asking some really great questions. Um, Goodness okay just one more question it's curious to know how lack of physical contact example touch hugs looks in research about loneliness screens don't support touch a very quick answer Alexis if you know anything on this.
2: Oh well, yes, I guess this is a, a tricky one, but it sort of feeds into the fact that we really need more research into where online uh, social interaction is as good as or falls short of physical interaction. Um, but also, I guess, bearing in mind that people differ a lot in the degree to which they desire physical um, closeness. So, some people actually don't. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, a high degree of individual variability there in what they value um, in terms of what looks like meaningful social connection. Thanks. Thanks so much, Lexan. thank yeah. you um, for that question.
1: All right. So um, we'll finish up. Uh, so in terms of e-mental health tools, Um, Black Dog Institute has My Compass for Mild, Moderate Anxiety and Depression based on CBT, um, which is an excellent e-mental health tool. Uh, Black Dog Institute also has an article on what's loneliness and how we can overcome it in tough times that you can have a look at. And Reach Out has um, Ask a Therapist What to Do if You're Feeling Lonely, which might also be a terrific resource. Um, in terms of supporting your own mental health, um, there's 10, the Essential Network for Health Professionals. I particularly encourage people to have a look at the, all the modules are excellent, but the burnout module is just wonderful. So I really encourage you to have a look at this, um, and that's on demand and free and anonymous, and they're just superb tools. So I invite you to have a look at those if you think they'd be useful for you or someone uh, you know. Uh We'd love you to connect with us. Um, You can visit our website to look at some of our health professional training um, and you can also follow us on social media too. And thank you, everybody. Thank you so much to our wonderful panellists today, to um, our terrific uh, participants and for your great questions. And uh, thank you for joining us. Go well and um, look after yourselves and all the best for the rest of the year. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.